Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! the tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and as always, I am joined by my good friend and a fellow frustrated trying to get things recorded tonight, but Skype and our recording programs weren't really working until about three minutes ago, Scott Gardner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, long-ass introduction. <laughs> But no, you're right. It, it is frustrating when these stupid things don't. You know, it's like a, I say this at work all the time. You know, technology is wonderful when it works. And uh, yeah, sometimes well, I, these things have a mind of their own. According to our good friend and uh, narrator of our intro, Scott Rifen, Skype is actually working on a broadcasting version of its software. Ah. Basically, all of the recording stuff is incorporated into Skype. Uh, you might have to pay a little money for that, but I, I pay three bucks a month anyways so that I can record calls uh, from landlines because it's uh, it's easier than <laughs> it's easier than trying to figure out, okay, I gotta hook it, this up to my cell phone and then I gotta do this and then I gotta do that. It's just just easier to pay three dollars a month that I really don't notice. so because once the first three dollars is gone, you, you really don't notice the rest of it. so right. Well, luckily, to cheer us up, we have email. Usually you have like a little ooh thing. I like emails. <laughs> the first one is from frequent letter writer and uh, avid listener, Jose A. Rivera. It says, New 52 Earth 2. Um, I don't think he's trying to wind you up, I promise. So... <laughs> He better not be. <laughs> hey, guys. Normally I'd send an email about a particular episode, but there's something I'm curious about. Do you guys read Earth 2? I know there's a stigma that the new 52 sucks, and there's nothing good about it, but oddly enough, this has been one of the better exceptions to that rule. I know it's... Excuse me. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I know it's and I know it's not the original Earth 2, 
nor is this the original JSA, but hear me out. Now, before we go further, have you read any of Earth 2 or World's Finest? I don't think I've read any of uh, New 52, with the exception of... Now, granted, I'm behind. Um, I was reading Aquaman. I need to get caught back up again. I read the two issues. I think it was two issues of Justice League that crossed over with the Aquaman story. Throne of Atlantis, which is, if I recall, you liked. Uh, I did. I, yeah, I did. I really enjoyed that a lot. And of course, I read um, All Star Western. Beyond that, I have not. I don't believe I've read anything else. New Fifty Two. Um, I have. I guess the best way you describe it is I've lurked a bit to see what other people are saying, and I've read things about you know upcoming books or books that are out. I've read reviews and things like that, which are, of course, granted, you can only glean so much from. Um, I, I still haven't seen anything that makes me either intrigued enough to want to check it out, or I, I've not seen anything that makes me feel like okay, you know, all is forgiven, I'll come back. I, I'm just, I, And I, I hate to say it, but I don't see that happening either. However, I'm willing that's to hear fair. Jose out, you know. No, but that's, 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 that's extremely fair. I was actually uh, listening to an episode of the Fantasticast, which is hosted by Stephen Lacey and our, our good friend Andrew Leyland. And uh, Andy, through the course of the episode mentioned something that I had said in another podcast where basically some of us are at this point where we're kind of basically have gone through the five stages of grief and anytime there's a big announcement of something upcoming there isn't a oh man but there isn't a oh man I gotta read that either it's just this kind of huh well I wonder how that's gonna turn out (laughs) isn't that interesting yeah Yeah. exactly yes so and I and I think that's perfectly I think that's fine, in all honesty. I, I, I think there is only there is only so long where you are going to be constantly excited about any given thing. You know? You know, there there's a the, there's a shelf limit on it because whoever is in charge of that any given thing is going to change and with that it's going to alter what made you like it in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're kind of going through that right now with the EU in Star Wars. Yeah. So, you know, you just you just gotta <laughs> roll with the punches and hope that someday it comes back to your way of thinking, basically. So, until then, we do what we do here, which is read old comics. Now, uh, before I get into my thoughts, I wanted to go through what Jose said because I think he's gonna copy. I'm uh, not copy. I think he's gonna. I think I, I don't want to repeat a lot of what he's gonna say. So. Uh, Emailing continue. Emailing? Really? God, I am off today. The email continues. From a production standpoint, the book has been one of the most consistent since the New 52 launched. Nicola Scott is a fantastic artist, and I've always likened her to a mix of Dan Jurgens and George Perez. When James Robinson was writing it, I got a sense there was an overall plan for the title. When the news came, he was leaving, and Tom Taylor... I always want to say Tom Tyler, and I think right. the dude that played Captain Marvel, right? Yeah, uh, was taking over. I was worried. In Robinson's last issue, he left the book on a huge cliffhanger, and thankfully Taylor has picked up those threads and ran with them. I'm going to completely agree with him about Nicola Scott. She is a fantastic artist. She has that 
you know, he compares her to Dan Jurgens and George Perez. I think that's apt because she's got a really slick style that I just just sings to me basically. Uh, when she was drawing uh, the the Superman, either in, I think she drew a couple issues of the. I don't want to call it the adjectiveless Superman, but uh, when she was drawing a few issues of Superman, I don't think the character looked. I think it looked better there than in just about any other place it was being drawn at at the time. So, uh, Jose continues. In terms of the story, I'll tell you why I like it. There's pretty. There's a lot of pretty cool twists that make you believe this is an alternate Earth. There are similar heroes but different takes. In the first issue, the Earth Two Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman sacrifice themselves showing that on this Earth there are consequences. Green Lantern's powers are more connected to the green, while Solomon Grundy's powers are connected to something called the Rot, which is, I ta- which is a take I never think of, but that was really cool when it was brought up. On this Earth, Lois Lane's mind has been transplanted into the body of Red Tornado. The new Batman of Earth 2 gets his incredible strength from Miraclo, developed by Rex Mason, not Rex Tyler, and we have a new Kryptonian. There are other fantastic things about the title, but I don't want to spoil it. Even better is a companion title called World's Finest that deals with Huntress and Power Girl. The same day of the heroes of Earth 2 died, they came to Earth 1. Now they're trying to get back home. While it may not be the Earth 2 we know and love, and while they still haven't become the Justice Society, Earth 2 has been one of the most entertaining and surprising books I've read in a long time. If I were to recommend those books to you guys, I'd say wait for a convention or a one-day show and just stock up. That way you can go through as many issues but not feel too bad about spending all that money. If you like it, awesome. If you don't like it, at least you didn't pay full price. Well, that's all I have, but I just wanted to let you know what's going on with the JSA and the New 52. Kind of Jose A. Rivera. <laughs> Surprisingly, I, uh, I've i been reading this time. I picked it up mainly because James Robinson was writing it. He was the guy that kind of kick-started the JSA and, you know, getting the JSA back into the hearts and minds of people in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give it a chance. And while I am horribly behind, because I, I tend to get into fits and spurts where I'll... I won't read a book for, like, six, seven months, and then I'll get the hankering to read it, and it's all right there because I've just been picking it up, so it's better than trying to find it later on eBay. Uh, just more convenient for me. So I've only gotten to the point where they introduce Dr. Fate into the series, but it's been interesting. Uh, World's Finest actually started off really awesome. It was Paul Levitz and George Perez. Uh, And Levitz is still writing the title of, of World's Finest, and it's the adventures of Power Girl and Daughter of Batman Huntress and on a separate earth as they're like he says they're trying to get back but at the same time they've developed their own lives especially power girl so uh it, it's it's been kind of interesting it's uh it's not exactly the classic take on these characters but at the same time I'm enjoying what I'm reading and I haven't gotten to where uh Tom Taylor takes over but uh, that cliffhanger that he talks about had a lot of people talking. So it, it's kind of funny that one of the best books of the New 52 has nothing to do with the mainstream continuity of the New 52. So I don't know what that says, but I have an idea. So that's what I'm going to leave it at before I get snarky. Uh, but I, 
I, I, I'm sitting here trying to think if I really want to recommend this to you, Scott, because I know you, <laughs> and I think you would like certain parts of it, but I'm worried about what other part, how you would react to other parts, and if that would cloud your overall feeling of the uh, of the of the book and the characters, if that makes any sense. It, it does. It totally does. You know what's funny? I was listening on on my ride home today. I, I'm still making my way through back episodes of Tales, which <laughs> I'm always hesitant to mention that because I, I wonder if that sounds incredibly vain. You know what I mean? But uh, I, I took a little break for a while to listen to some other things. I, I am so ridiculously behind on my podcast listening right now. It's it's insane. I'll probably never get caught up. As a matter of fact, what I might do, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I might just go ahead and jump forward in time and start listening to everybody's podcasts like now and just forget like the six months where I wasn't listening to anybody because I, I, I'll never get caught up if I just struggle to, to get caught up, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. But <clears throat> but anyway, I was listening to a, an episode of Tales. I, I couldn't tell you what number it was. Somewhere in the fifth, high 50s, I think. And we were talking about this exact thing. You you were telling me about, hey, did you hear that there was an announcement that had like just come out about this was going to happen that there was going to be a new earth too. I think it, wow, it was announced was that it was actually going to be uh, a new justice society title. Mm-hmm. But I remember you specifically mentioned, uh, Nicola Scott and talking about her as an artist and, and all this sort of thing. And I don't, I can't remember if I listened through my entire part afterwards, but we got into this big thing about this sense of not being able to go home again and all that and, and really going on that. So I don't want to go back into it because you can hear all that in that episode, whatever episode number it was. But listening to it, I'm just kind of nodding to my own, you know, my own thing that I'm saying in the episode thinking, yeah, you know, it's funny because I'll listen to myself a lot in old shows and find that, wow, I've really changed. I don't, I don't really think that way anymore, or I've changed my mind or whatever. But in this particular instance, I'm still in complete agreement with myself from that was probably a couple of years ago that episode was recorded. I still pretty much feel the same way when it comes to certain things, and this is one of them. I, I just, I, I don't think... For me personally, I think you're right. I I don't think that I could get over it. I, I you know, and it even if this was the entire pre-crisis world and the and the same continuity and everything brought back, even maybe some of the same creators, sometimes you you just can't capture lightning in a bottle. You know, the second time, and, and you know, I, I, as I s- said in that episode, you know, I pointed to that. Um, JSA annual that came out and this was several years ago now but it was the one where um, Ordway did the art mm-hmm. and it had a nice uh, uh, Alex Ross cover on it and everything and it was the Earth 2 of old you know with the Infinitors and everybody was in there and it's not like it was bad or anything but at the end of the day more than anything it, it just it made me sad. It should have made me, I should have thrilled to it. Like, Oh my God, these are my old friends. I get to see them again. But that's not how I walked away from it. I walked away from it. Like, you know, thanks for trying, but you know, it just wasn't the same. So yeah, you know, 
You, you talked about the stages of grief and all that. I, I think for me, the, the stage of grief came not so much to acceptance as, as this weird sense of, um, well, I guess it's really all over, you know? And I, I don't, it's, it's weird. I find myself in this position of not, I don't even know what I want from DC anymore because they're so far afield from where I would like them to be that I'm not, you know, I'm not terribly interested in what they're producing these days. And I'm, it's getting to look more and more like it would be almost a miracle for them to ever win me back as far as their superhero stuff, because it's just not where I want to be. You know what I mean? And it's not going to be for a very long time. For a very long time. And there's a good chance that it never will be again. I, I think there is a possibility in the sense of, no, no, granted, I have to live long enough for this to happen, but, you know, the same way that these things are cyclical, they, they come around in, in cycles, and it generally takes, you know, 20 years or something like that, but you'll get these these new creators that will come into comics or come into, you know, a, a medium like this, And they grew up on a certain thing. And so they want to relive and recreate that thing and build upon that thing that they loved. So at some point I can, I can see where there are going to be creators who grew up thrilling to like the, you know, from like the, from crisis to crisis version of Superman, for example, and they're want to they're going to want to live in that era. That's that's the era that they're going to want to emulate and maybe even try to recreate. And that gives me hope that we could eventually maybe not exactly get that incarnation back, but something that feels closer to that if I'm making any sense. And that gives me hope that that could happen at some point. And you know, the other thing that gives me hope is is the same way that the, the editors and the creators and the writers and everybody that was creating comics during my heyday uh, eventually left. Well, the people that are currently there that I think are, I look at it more as a blame game, they're more to blame for what they've done, they won't be there forever either. Regimes change. And eventually the the current regime will change, hopefully for the better. And, you know, the same way that a lot of the people in those roles worked to actively tear down everything that the crisis begat, hopefully somebody else will come in later and maybe want to, I hope not so much tear down what these guys have set up, but just restore some of the some of the good old days if you know what i mean so well, that makes sense i mean it's um it's kind of weird we we we've lived if if i look at the dc universe as it existed in the time period when i was a heavy collector you know, I came in, Mike Carlin was the editor on the Superman books, and you had Dick Giordano and Jeanette Kahn in charge, basically, in the, the higher-ups. And things stayed pretty consistent until about the mid-90s when certain, you know, 
shakeups and everything were going on, but you still had those same people in positions of power. Eventually, Mike Carlin was made executive editor, which is kind of like a—I was assuming it was kind of like a um, like an editor in chief position. But DC didn't have editor in chiefs anymore. Marvel thing. and Paul Levitz was the the president and publisher, and that all changed in around 2002 when Dan DiDio came on. And DiDio has now been in a position of major power and even gotten promoted from that uh, for 12 years now. And that's a long time. You know, even in, in my collecting days, that, that was you know, the people that were there when I started collecting weren't necessarily in those positions 12 years later. So right. I, I'm wondering how long that DC can sustain this with Jim Lee and Dan DiDio in the publisher position. And more than that, I kind of wonder if they realize, and this is just my opinion, and this is not me dogging anybody. I mean, if you are out there right now and you are legitimately enjoying what's going on in the DC Universe and you think everything's fine, then more power to you. I'm glad you're enjoying your comics because I'd hate to think that you were buying comics on a monthly basis and were hating them. But it occurs to me that at one point, I think in, 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 in my fandom and I think in your being in the comics, you, you always had that thing, man, I wish the movies we're more like the comics right now. Mm-hmm. And I look at, for example, they, they, they were released, as of this recording, a couple of days ago, the shot of Ben Affleck standing by the new Batmobile. Mm-hmm. And the costume looks very, very comic booky. actually. Uh, it looks very New 52, but it look, you know, his, the, 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 the cow horns are a little shorter, uh, the, the bat's kind of weird looking, but the overall design reminds me kind of what Jim Lee had designed for the new 52. And on one hand, that's good synergy between comics and movies. On the other hand, are we risking dating the movies by having them look like a very specific time period? You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, you could still watch the 89 Batman film. Hell, you can watch pretty much any of those Batman films. And while you can argue about whether they have dated well or, you know, in in the case of Batman Returns, everything looks like it was shot on a set, doesn't have a real organic feel, and as you get into the Schumacher movies, the sets just get more and more overblown. But when I look at those costumes, they have a more timeless element to them because they didn't really resemble what was going on in the comics at the time. So they kind of existed on their own so that you can come to that years later and watch it, and it still feels like it's its own entity. I'm kind of worried that if we have a Batman costume that looks like a Jim Lee drawing, that that is going to look horribly dated five to six years down the line. And I know people love Jim Lee, and I know there are people out there that think he's the best artist ever. I think he does very nice pinup drawings, and I think he does very nice posing drawings. I think the man doesn't have 
the storytelling chops that somebody who has been drawing comics for over 20 years should have at this point. Right. I should look at a Jim Lee comic now and go, holy crap, look at how much he's progressed. Not, holy crap, he's still drawing everyone standing around looking at each other and not really interacting with each other. And, you know, I, I, I just think it's it's kind of dangerous to put all your your eggs in one basket. And that's what it feels like DC's kind of doing right now, that they're going all in with everything having this kind of homogenized feel. And because of that, outside of Earth 2 and World's Finest, nothing feels distinctive. And nothing feels like, you know, like when I was a kid reading comics, and I hate to sound like the, when I was a kid, comics were great, and everything sucks now, because that's not really what I'm saying, but... I can read Superman, I can read Batman, I can read Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, I can read all those titles. And they all connect, but they all had their own feeling to it. Whereas now, everything feels the same, and I'm wondering if that isn't going to dilute things to the point where you're going to drive people away to where a regime change isn't going to happen organically, it's going to be forced. And that's always uglier, in my opinion. You know, when, when, when the guys are kicked out because they're just not performing, that leads to a horrible shakeup period. So that's so as much as I want to see change, at, at the at the same time, I'm kind of worried about it. <laughs> so, but we spent see, a lot more time. What we don't know what we want. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're old, and that's okay. I tell you, you know. One thing that would go a heck of a long way, though, and, and I fully expect that this will take a regime, a regime change to happen. One thing that would definitely uh, help a lot is to get someone in a position of power at DC that does acknowledge that this exists, but also actively works to woo back the disenfranchised, the older fanboys who just frankly feel disenfranchised. And it's not just a feeling anyway. I mean, it, it, for me personally, it's it was confirmed. It was confirmed actually meeting and speaking with Dan DiDio and, and putting a question to him very directly about, you know, hey, what, when are you going to throw the older fanboys a bone? And having him just kind of shrug it off, that to me was confirmation that, you know, we're not really writing comics for you guys anymore. And until that attitude turns around and there's someone in his position or a position, you know, on par with his at DC that takes measure of that and says, you know, hey, you know, those guys were here for a long time and, and they kept us running through some really tough times. Maybe we ought to throw them a bone. Maybe we ought to do something for them. Until that happens, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't think things will change, at least for me personally. I don't think I'll be interested to come back, because who wants to go where they don't feel welcome? Yeah, at, at, at the very least, would it be really nice uh, if you could at least fake it? Yeah, you know, no you, joke. Uh, I, 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 I know that sounds terrible, but... I don't know who they're trying to court now, because they did the New 52, which started everything... Let me back that up. 
They did the new 52, which started most things over, except for the stuff that was actually selling well, in which case that was left pretty much alone. So, they they did that to get a bunch, to ostensibly to get new fans to come in and read the books, right? Right. So now we're almost three years in, and everything's, like, really dense. Nothing's been consistent there have been, like, changes... Wow. Changes from the single-issue edition to the trade paperback edition that completely alters everything. Mm-hmm. Good example, in the first issue of Batman, they showed all the Robins, right? So you had... Dick Grayson was there, Tim Drake was there, and Damien. And under them were little boxes that said, you know, Tim Drake, Robin, circa this era. Well, when they went to the trade paperback, that was changed to Red Robin. And it was within one year of this new continuity, not even a year, they basically said, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, we, we said that in the beginning, but we didn't really mean that. He was always Red Robin because he didn't want to take the name Robin because he felt he could never live up to, you know, what Jason represented. You know, if you're doing that to your audience within a year, you're kind of screwing over your audience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we could bitch all day long about how certain characters are treated. Superman. We could uh, bitch all day long about, you know, wanting them to get back to a more classic feel. We could get we could bitch all day long about wanting them wanting to appeal to a broad spectrum of readers, new and old, and get us all together and enjoying the books. We could complain about that, but you know what I want more than anything? Consistency. Mm-hmm. I want consistency. I want to be able to th- think that I am reading a book right now, a storyline, that will matter six months from now. Five years may be asking too much at this point, but at least, like, six months to a year down the line, I want what I'm reading right now to matter. And it doesn't. And that is the biggest fault of the New 52, in my opinion. Well, you know, it's it's symptomatic of a larger problem where suddenly continuity doesn't seem to be important anywhere. I mean, we just recently had the announcement of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, which has existed, you know, virtually since the first movie came out, uh, has now been completely scrapped to make way for clean continuity or whatever, you know, however they want to describe it. So, I mean, DC's hardly alone with this. And, you know, similar things were done with Star Trek just a few years ago. So, I mean, this is happening over and over again and it's funny a a book that we're going to briefly discuss tonight had me thinking about continuity a lot uh in the past couple of days uh one of the books that we're going to discuss tonight had a backup story in it by e nelson bridwell and it got me to thinking about bridwell and guys like him that if they were alive today what would they think of the state of, say, DC Comics, for example. 
I would think that E. Nelson Bridwell would break down crying if he could see where DC is today, where, where continuity is such a mess, and it really doesn't seem to matter that, that they keep saying things like, we're more focused on story than we are on continuity, which, you know, to a certain degree, I can see that. I, and story is important. Story is everything. But not at the expense of certain things, continuity being one of them. Because I'll be honest with you, I've always been honest about this. I'm a continuity guy. I'm a continuity freak. And if you don't have continuity, I question what the point is. To me, continuity is literally everything when you're building a universe that you want me to follow. And when you suddenly start telling me that continuity really isn't important then to me it's like, well, then following you is not really important. Following the, the story that you're trying to tell really isn't important to me. And that's really where, not just DC, but a lot of these franchises that I've mentioned, that's where they've lost me because continuity to me is everything. But I, I really want, I, I solicit the readers, or excuse me, the listeners rather, the listeners to write in. I want to know, you know, your opinion on this what does continuity mean to you is it important because i've been reading a lot of posts lately here there and everywhere about these things like dc comics and like star wars uh, expanded universe being scrapped and these different things and for all the people that are out there lamenting the deaths of these franchises it seems like there's twice as many, at least, out there applauding it, going, finally, we can get rid of all that, and we don't need all that stuff. Just tell me a good story. Just just make me a good movie, and I'm perfectly happy. And frankly, that attitude shocks me, coming from fanboys. So I wonder, are these really fanboys that are giving this opinion, or are these just, you know, fair-weather guys that blow in to, to watch the latest Star Wars movie when it comes out? And then, you know, they move right on to the next movie that comes out the next week, and it's not really, you know, so you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So no, I know exactly what you're I'd really like to know, you know, what do our listeners, how do you weigh in on this subject? Continuity, important, not important? What do you think? All right, so the next email we've got here is from Russell Bragg in Clarksburg, West Virginia, and he writes in about the Tales of the Justice Society of America Back to the Bins special, Superman versus Shazam. This is a recent one. This was a very recent one. He says, hi, guys. He says, enjoying the heck out of the show. This issue was very hard for me to get, just like Mike. And like Mike said, I must have been the only one looking for it on the day that I won it. Says I got mine from eBay sometime this past January for $15.50 in what they called very good condition. It sure looks better than that to me. At least up to fine. I don't even know uh, what the story was, uh, or I didn't rather, didn't even know what the story was about until I got it. It was awesome. Uh, I had heard the review of this comic on Superman and the Bronze Age when it came out. If I remember correctly, I think they reviewed it uh, while they were in Metropolis. Both reviews from both shows were excellent. Can't add or detract from. Uh, can't add to or detract from. Uh, both of you uh, can take a bow or curtsy. <laughs> Says my All-Star Squadron collection is still coming along. I have 1 through 25, but the continuousness... 
uh, ends there. I have 17 more issues, but with scattered numbering. I decided to add Infinity Ink to my collection. I really wanted Infinity Ink, the uh, Generation Saga Volume 2, but it doesn't appear to be coming out. Do you think since Wonder Woman appears naked in number 5, they thought it was too risque? I went ahead and bought uh, issue number 5 to get my collection rolling. Uh, better end here for now. Keep up the great work as always. Thanks for keeping me entertained at work. And again, that's from Russell Bragg. Um, I don't know. I doubt that that would be reason enough because, yeah, she's naked, but by today's standards of yeah. what we see in comics, I mean, when Supergirl, the newer Supergirl, appeared uh, you know, in post-Infinite Crisis continuity, I think she showed more skin than naked Wonder Woman did in uh, in Infinity Inc. number 5, so I I don't think that would be reason enough. It, it was probably, and I hate to say this, there probably just wasn't enough solicitations for it. Mm-hmm. When they solicited it, there weren't enough orders. And they're not going to print it if they don't think they can sell it. Yeah. So, and, and that, that doesn't happen often, but it does happen where a book is solicited, and then they kind of renege on it. I mean, they, they were talking for a couple years there of doing a showcase of who's who, but then they decided against it. And I don't know if that's because they, you know, it's a little too niche, you know? <laughs> only, only certain people these days would want to buy such a thing. But then again, there's a showcase right now that covers all of the Justice Society stuff from All-Star number 58 uh, through the Adventure Comics run. So... See, you never, you never really can tell. I can't help but wonder with things like this if the fact that the majority of a series is fifty cent bin fodder hurts when it comes to a you know an executive decision on whether to reprint it or not. Even though the demand may sort of be there, you know, there's still the the ready ready availability of it. So you've got like half the nation that might live somewhere where there's a decent comic shop where they can go and just start finding the back issues they want out of the back issue bins. Then you got the other half of the nation that, I don't know, maybe live rurally or something, dying for this stuff, have absolutely no access to it because it's never been reprinted. But the numbers just aren't there to convince the company to actually go ahead with the with the reprinting. I don't know if that theory holds water, but... That, I, I just I wonder if that might have something to do with it, you know? I, I think it does. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I think also, in all honesty, we're, we're getting to the point where more and more stuff is available digitally. Right. And like, just, you know, the, there's a new Doomsday storyline going on in the Superman books right now. And to, you know, kind of celebrate that... They put all of the death of, you know, for uh, the the Doomsday arc, you know, for a friend, Reign of the Superman, Superman, Doomsday Hunter, Prey, uh, the that that three issue Doomsday series where Brainiac took over Doomsday's body, which was Is that the Doomsday know, Wars? Is that yeah, what that something one? like that? And like some of the new Fifty Two stuff that involved Doomsday, all at ninety nine cents a piece. Now, if you've never read the Death of Superman and you're kind of interested in it. That's a really cheap way to get everything. Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, like for basically 40 bucks, you have the whole thing right there on your iPad or your, mm-hmm. your Samsung tablet. So I think, and I, 
It's kind of funny. I, I was thinking the other day about how t- in 2008, with the release of Iron Man, comic book movies changed dramatically. You know, before that, it you know, Spider-Man changed things dramatically. The, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. Mm-hmm. And before that, even a couple years before that, the X-Men. But it seemed like there was something about between Spider-Man coming out in 2002 and Iron Man coming out in 2008, where all the comic book films had a very similar feel to it, and then after Iron Man, most of the comic book films had a had a new similar feel to it. Mm-hmm. And over the past 15 years, we've seen the ascendancy of the trade paperback. I wonder if we're in the waning days of that. It could very well be. With the cancellation of the Essentials line from Marvel... To, you know, in favor of this epic thing where they basically just, you know, in, in, in a cheaper trade, in full color, they just put out like an entire run from a certain creator on a, on a title. Uh, instead of just saying, hey, here's everything. Uh, you know, like with Spider-Man. You know, here's the Amazing Spider-Man. You can read from Amazing Fantasy number 15 all the way up into the 80s. You know, in black and white format. I think because of digital comics and the the fact that tablets are getting cheaper and more uh, omnipresent, I think we're going to see the trade paperback kind of die off a little bit. It did very well. Of reading it in, in, a, in a digital form. That works if the companies act fast enough. I mean, we already know that the vast majority of comics have been scanned, and I'm talking about privately scanned, you know, pirated, if you will, not professionally scanned by the companies themselves. So if they act fast enough to strike, you know, hopefully while the iron is still hot, and they could do something like take the entire run of All-Star Squadron or the entire run of Infinity, Inc., have it done really nicely, very professionally, maybe with even some... You know, like if they were to print that, uh, like in a hardcover, they would typically throw some bonus, you know, DVD extras, if you will, into a printing like that. If they just switch gears and decide, you know what, let's do the same thing, but let's do it digital. And they created the entire run of, you know, one of those titles, threw a few bonuses in there, maybe throw in the annuals, you know, maybe throw in the, the crossover issues, whatever. And make it worthwhile and charge. Here's the big thing. They have to charge the right price for it. But if they were able to do that and make it more appealing at that price point than just simply torrenting it off of some sketchy website somewhere, then they might have a they might be able to save themselves in that regard. Because I think you're right. I I think it is you know, the downloading of the digital comics, I think it's definitely taking a bite. And I think the comic companies know that. I think they're they're feeling that. They're definitely aware that this is happening and that it's going on. That It's not that there's not, an, an, uh, you know, it's not that there's a lack of interest out there for some of this material. It's that, yeah, as the digital stuff has become that, you know, extremely readily available to people that have these uh, portable devices... Well, they're, they're finding these other sources for them. It's what I've said for a long time. I, I think the comic companies, they screwed around too long before they went digital. 
And now that they have, they kind of look like also rans in the digital field, whereas they're the owners of the actual product. They should be the ones controlling the flow, and they're not. They've never been because they waited too long. To be fair, Marvel has its unlimited thing going on right now. Mm-hmm. Where for $10 a month or $100 a year, you can read basically every Marvel book since Fantastic Four number one. Right. And they introduced that, you know, back like 2006, 2007, maybe 2008. Maybe I'm kind of wrong with the times. But, uh, you know, right around that time period, it was right around the time we were all starting to podcast, as a matter of fact. And at the time, it seemed kind of weird. Like, wow, why would you do that? Now with tablets being a thing, it looks like they were ahead of the curve on that. Whereas if I had a tablet, I'd probably pony up $10 a month if I could read anything I pretty much wanted to from Marvel Comics up until about a year ago. Right. You know, I, I th- you know it's like, hey, I want to read John Byrne's Alpha Flight. Boom, it's right there. And yes, I have those issues, but maybe there's something else that I don't want to buy a trade paperback of. And I don't feel like downloading because that takes time. And frankly, you know, with, with, with how sketchy some of these things are getting because more and more people are sabotaging those sites. Right. Um, you know, maybe if I wanted to read some Fantastic Four from the 70s that I don't really want to buy a trade paperback from, $10 a month might be worth it, you know? Might, might make it worth my while to do so. So is that 10 bucks get you pretty much unlimited access to everything? Because that was, something you know something like that is actually a good idea. I wasn't sure how it exactly worked, because what I was going to say is that you know you would have to have some sort of fair pricing structure, because I can't see charging say like ninety nine cents a piece for every book across the board, when clearly some books are fifty cent fodder or twenty five yeah. cent fodder that sort of thing. So charging you know the same amount of money for or, you know, some great hard to find back issue collectible if it were in paper versus, you know, issue three of Dirt Man that, you know, you can find in any 50 cent box in the country. So, yeah, doing like one lump sum price for per month and having access to the entire library of that company, yeah, that, that works. I think that's a pretty cool idea. So if you could go and you know, take the entire series of All Star and throw it on your iPad, and you know you're only paying that ten buck fee per month. Yeah, that works. If that's how they're doing it, I don't know. I, I haven't looked into that personally myself. Well, I was I was uh, talking to somebody recently about it, and he was pretty high on the on the service. So it, it sounded kind of interesting to me. Also, made me kind of want the want DC to have a similar service because that would be awesome right i still wonder if it's possible to do something as far as throwing in extras you know throwing in some sort of incentives you know to make it to where because you know i still go back to the thing of you're only going to get so many people that are going to pay for something that they can get for free out of a sense of it's the right thing to do you're not going to get everybody so the people that you're not going to get out of some sense of of you know right and wrong or some sense of obligation or some sense of, of duty, then you have to kind of entice those people. Here, come pay for this with us. We know you can get it for free over there, but if you pay for it with us, you know, you get whatever. Con- you know, cookies. You know? Considering that Marvel has that uh, 
AI or whatever called app thing. Right. Where if you're reading a book, you can hit, you know, go to your smartphone or your tablet and it unlocks additional content. Right. Uh, I don't see why you couldn't do like, hey, click on this and read an interview with uh, the writer. Click on this and look at some sketches from... You know, the, the the early drafts of this series. You know, like, all the stuff you get in, like, a uh, absolute edition. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, hell, for all I know, they might be doing that already, but that's definitely an idea. Just something to entice. Make but it worth my while, bitches! That's it. Well, exactly. I th- I uh, I don't think we've devoted enough time to the emails, and I do apologize for the lack of time we devoted to emails tonight. So I think <laughs> I said sarcastically, uh, we are jumping into the December 1984 books mm-hmm. this week. I'm really excited because we are five, five months, months to crisis. crisis. Yikes! And Yikes! And to tell us all about this uh, fantabulous issue of All-Star Squadron. Oh, did I grab the right issue? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this is good. You can tell, folks, that we were really itching to get to these books tonight. (laughs) Uh, I I didn't know Scott felt the same way I did. Apparently he did. So, Scott, why don't you tell us all about All-Star Squadron number 40? Oh, I liked I mean, it wasn't that bad, but all right, I'll go ahead and give you the skinny on the whole thing, folks. All right, so this is All-Star Squadron number 40. Uh, As Mike said, the December 1984 issue, this was actually on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, uh, September 27th, 1984. Cover price was a whole 75 cents. Cover credits on this one are Arville M. Jones was the penciler. And Aubrey Bradford was the inker. It depicts, well, you knew it had to happen, Amazing Man versus Real American. While a world waits breathless, they are uh, toe-to-toe with each other and just duking it out. It's a really nice cover on this. Um, it, you know, they've, you've got uh, Amazing Man. He looks like he's landing a solid uh, club to uh, Real American's head. And Real American, he looks like he's trying to punch... Uh, amazing man and kind of getting blocked out of the way in the background we have a uh, a newspaper headline that says race riots in detroit and there's a, a photo with the caption of showing the uh, all-stars uh in battle with uh, with uh the locals uh in detroit in this uh this big riot that has broken out it's a really cool cover i actually like this it's one of my favorite covers of the whole series to be honest with you i like this cover a whole lot uh, Roy Thomas, of course, is the writer slash editor on this one. Richard Howell is the guest penciler. Bill Collins, inker, Cody, letterer, and Gene D'Angelo, colorist. The story is entitled The Rise and Fall of the Phantom Empire. Historical quote for this issue. Hitler supports housing discrimination. This was a placard seen at a Detroit housing demonstration in 1942. Now, there is no roll call for this issue. At some point, we lost the roll call. I don't know why they stopped doing them, but they did. But I like the roll call, so I went ahead and made one up here. So we've got Hawkman, Green Lantern, Firebrand, Johnny Quick, Our Man, Robot Man, and Liberty Bell. Plus, 
this issue, we get a brand new member that joins the All-Star Squadron, and I couldn't be happier about that. Yeah, the real American joining at the end was just a... <laughs> it was a shock, wasn't it? <laughs> Being voted team leader even shocked me more. <laughs> so in Detroit, Hawkman and Green Lantern arrive on uh, the scene to witness yet another clash between the black folk who have paid uh, their rent and want to move into their new homes and the local whites who are attempting to keep them out. Also on scene is the so-called real American laying into the blacks with his steel whip and who is trying to spin it so that the assistance of the two JSAers looks like they've come to his aid. Green Lantern is having none of this, of course, and uh, takes an instant dislike to the hooded figure. But something about the real American's booming voice enthralls Hawkman. And it's not until he and Lantern fly away from the scene that he realizes that merely being near Real American uh, makes him susceptible to some sort of hypnotic influence to which Green Lantern seems perfectly immune. Just then, Firebrand spies the duo and flies up to meet them and escort them to a nearby church where Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Our Man, and Robot Man are attending to blacks injured in all the fighting. Will Everett's annoying girlfriend goes on yet another racist tirade and gets everybody all riled up again. So the uh, All-Stars leave and hold a meeting inside of a cloud. That's no joke. And uh, thanks to GL and his ring's abilities to uh, whip them up some seats and a radio tower with which to listen to the local news. Uh, this serves as a fairly clever way to bring anyone who may have missed prior chapters of this story up to speed but it's nothing that we don't already know. After some banter, the team's attention is, call, is uh, called by some commotion down below to where, on the steps of Police HQ, Real American is once again rabble-rousing, this time using his influence to incite the assembled crowd into a lynch mob for Will Everett, who is locked up inside. Green Lantern Power beams the uh, All-Stars into the station, and they try to convince the police captain on duty to do something before the mob takes action. He refuses to let Everett go, but allows the team to go out front and try to talk some sense into the crowd. However, Real American again asserts his persuasive powers, and this time is able to gain sway over everybody, blacks included. Everyone, that is, except Robot Man. For some reason, the mechanical man is immune to the bigot's vocal powers, and so uh, he bends the bars of the prison, tears off his own robotic ears, and then jams them in place over, over uh, Will Everett's ears as the former Olympian absorbs the properties of Robot Man's metal frame and transforms once again into Amazing Man. Once freed, the hometown hero lays into the real American, but good, as Robot Man generates sonic interference to jam the hypnotic effect of the hooded fiend's words. Amazing Man, well, he pretty much just beats the holy hell out of real American, despite very quickly losing his metallic properties, and with a final decisive blow sending the uh, real American reeling. Uh, American, uh, his voice goes all screwy, and at first Everett thinks that uh, he's merely damaged some sort of speech gadget that uh, his opponent was using, but 
After a shouted warning from Robot Man, he realizes that Real American is about to explode like a bomb. So acting quickly, Amazing Man absorbs the properties of Real American's steel whip and uses his own body as a shield to protect the gathered onlookers. After the Real American, uh, who is now revealed, of course, he was an android the entire time, which is, to me, this was, that was the wah, wah moment of the entire issue. <laughs> Um, so after he's destroyed, the leader of the Phantom Empire, uh, who had been observing all these goings on from a safe distance, he retreats to his secret lair, uh, where he contacts the Monitor and Lila, and he begs for a replacement, but he is refused. Just then, Johnny Quick arrives and confronts him. The leader flees up the stairs and into the diner from the beginning of the last issue. Johnny super speeds over to him and rips off his cowl, revealing Barth the cook. <laughs> I thought it was Old Man Carruthers. Now, I was just going to say, admit it, you thought I was going to say Old Man Withers, didn't you? Who runs some haunted amusement park. But no, I don't know. I've used that joke one too many times. But, but it is still a Scooby-Doo ending, nonetheless. Trust me, folks. Yeah. So anyway, Barth tries the old, uh, hey, you won't hurt me. There are rules for policemen line. But it doesn't go any better for... Uh, on Johnny Quick than it did on John McClane, and he is punched through a plate glass window in the front of the diner. And Johnny, as we promised last issue, takes a cup of coffee black. I like that part. Uh, all's well that ends well, or something like that, when the black folk realize that not all white people are racist assholes, and Amazing Man decided... <laughs> to... <laughs> not all of us. Uh, it's an amazing man. <laughs> it's just most of us. <laughs> it's a 50 50 shot, actually. <laughs> it's a total crapshoot. You're better off just not getting involved, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> an amazing man deciding he can do more good as a symbol on the national stage than in Detroit of what the colored man can do, and those are his words. Uh, accepts Liberty Bell's clumsy invitation to join the All-Star Squadron. Next issue, revealed at last, after 43 years, the secret origin of Starman. So let's see here. We got the All-Star Companion Volume 2. Let's see what it has to say about All-Star Squadron number 40. And I have to be honest... I have not looked ahead, so I don't know what these notes say. So let's see what we got here. Roy Thomas uh, recalls being told by DC in 1984-85 that the cover's Race Riots in Detroit newspaper headline kept copies of number 40 from being distributed in that city. In what city? Oh, Detroit, I guess. Uh, but he never heard any details or precise verification. Ooh, that's very interesting. Hmm. Huh. I wonder if that's really true. Uh, the photo image at top left of the cover is taken from that of the preceding issue. Yeah, see, I thought that that art looked familiar yeah. to me from the in interior of an issue. Page two of number 40 quotes the 1979 book State of War, Michigan in World War II by Alan Clive that on uh, February 28th, 1942, Detroit's mayor halted the scheduled move by... Uh, blacks into the Sojourner Truth homes, but that news did not arrive at the battleground in time to prevent another clash at about 12.15 p.m. The move was put off until April. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Reportedly, some middle-class blacks who resided in nearby Conant Gardens, is that how you pronounce that? C-O-N-A-N-T, Conant, I guess, yeah. uh, opposed the move, being worried about property values. Yeah, that was in the, in the issue, too, and I wondered if there was any, uh, any truth to that. So some of their own people didn't want them to move in there. That's mm-hmm. kind of messed up. Uh, uh, a panel on page 8 reveals that the android Real American was sold to the leader of the Phantom Empire by the Monitor, who would soon figure in the Omnibus DC series Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, we really need to cover that. <laughs> no. Uh, Amazing Fans uh, stays in Detroit to show that we Negroes uh, should be allowed to fight in uh, this man's war, not just deliver toilet paper. Wait, now he, but he doesn't stay in Detroit, though. Yeah. I think that's exactly what he said, that he decided not to stay in Detroit because he thought he would be a better that's symbol. That's an interesting mistake. Yeah. Uh, a perhaps anachronistic reference to the fact that during World War II, black soldiers were used only as support troops, not as frontline soldiers. Hmm. The letters page announces Rick Hoberg is departing, and Arville Jones, fill-in artist on number 37, uh, will become regular penciler. Arville, who got the news a few days before his June 27, 1984 wedding, so it was one of the best wedding presents he could have gotten. This issue's pinup is a JSA drawing by Joe Staten and Bob Layton from Amazing World of DC Comics number 16, and it's awesome. I love it's it. It's a humdinger. It is. I wonder if I have that issue, because that, that piece of art looked very familiar to me when I saw it, but I don't know which issue 16 is. I don't remember off the top of my head. Let's see. Is any of the pictures stuff here? There's uh, There's... A couple of interesting things. Uh, the name The Phantom Empire originated in a 1935 mascot movie serial in which singing cowboy Gene Autry, in his first dramatic role, battled hooded horsemen who rode forth from sci-fi hideouts in subterranean caverns. <laughs> uh, some sources claim the Black Legion, lauded by the real American to a gathered mob, was a real-life murder cult. A Midwestern branch of the Ku Klux Klan, the so-called Invisible Empire, whose name doubtless inspired that of the Phantom Empire. But RT sources were the uh, Autry chapter play and the melodramatic 1937 Warner Brothers film starring Humphrey Bogart. Apparently the Submariner uh, faced off against a secret empire as well. Hmm. Well, wasn't that the name of uh, that one story arc in Captain America as well? Wasn't it the Secret Empire? Something like that. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it as far as the uh, the relevant notes on this one. So what do you got on this issue, Mike? Uh, oh, a little bit, actually. I really like the cover. Yeah. Uh, really solid fight between Amazing Man and Real American. Um, unfortunately, it's one of those things where the cover kind of fakes you out on the art inside. And it's not that I dislike Richard Howell. I just feel in some cases he was very stiff. Yeah. Uh, but we kind of had that complaint uh, last time. The splash page, page one, interesting. I, I really, what I like about Howell is that he really gives Green Lantern a Martin Nodell feeling to it. Yeah. Uh, which I actually kind of uh, kind of like. Uh, 
quite a bit, actually. Uh, page two, I did like that the real American saw the JSA kind of taking out somebody and going, ah, you're on my side, which is kind of a cool way to skew the story. Uh, page three, I love that Green Lantern got hit in the head with a piece of wood. Um, If you don't mind my injecting here, because this was actually one of my notes, how many times do you think this sort of thing can happen before permanent brain damage sets in? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I agree with you completely. Uh, he, he, maybe he's the one that should have been kind of having mental problems and not Johnny Thunder. Right. <laughs> in the present. Um, page four, the, I like the shot of Green Lantern in that first panel. It's a good profile, uh, headshot of him, actually. And on the bottom panel, when Real American reaches out and touches both Green Lantern and Rockman, my first thought was, hey, man, back off. <laughs> You're my space, man. You're my space. <laughs> but also on page four, we get the line that stayed with me since the first time I read this. Uh, the Real American go, oh, and I suppose you marry one of them. Have a daughter who's colored? Mister, if I ever have a daughter, I won't care whether she's black, white, or green, Green Lantern says. Mm-hmm. Page five really liked the conversation between Hawkman and Green Lantern, where basically they, you know, Hawkman's just like, man, I, 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 I was agreeing with that guy, and now I don't. I think that's a good, subtle way of showing real American's power without spelling it out. Unfortunately, we get the exact opposite of that on the next page, and and that's not my only problem with this page. So you have Johnny Quick and uh, Liberty Bell you know, helping bandaging people up. It's like, yep, Johnny Quick, laughing cavalier to the uh, of the mile a second set, and mean with a Band-Aid. Oh, and by the way, I didn't do a damn thing to help anybody in this situation, so I'm making myself feel better by bandaging them up. I mean, <laughs> we could have stopped this fight, but we did it. And then at the bottom of the page, Liberty Bell, you know, when, he, when she's talking to Green Lantern, he goes, you know, Green Lantern goes, did you five encounter the, that real American creep? Did we? At first we thought he was a new recruit for our squad. He nearly had us talked into joining his Lily White Crusade. When the hell did that happen? Well, didn't I don't remember that happening in the previous issue. I remember them going, you know, well, you know, everyone has a right to speak, but I don't remember any of them going, man, we really need to get him on the All-Star Squadron. Wasn't there, see, I wish I had the issue right here in front of me, but wasn't there a, a, a moment where his powers of influence were, they held sway over somebody last issue, I think. I, I don't remember it being Bell, though. But didn't that happen last issue? That was the weird thing, because remember, Robot Man, Hour Man, and Firebrand were listening to him speak. So you figured if anybody's going to join up with him, or agree with him, it would be at that point, but they're all like, maybe they were too far away. But I don't remember a point where any any of them were like, we need to get him on the team. Right, okay, I see I see that, yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. It seemed like a weird thing to say. Um, page 7, that's kind of a tense little standoff Liberty Bell's having with uh, Rachel at the top of that page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you guys would have more of a leg to stand on if you had done something in the previous issue instead of go, no, arrest the people that were attacked because that, because that's justice somehow. Uh, page eight, I do like the cloud 
meeting room, uh, complete with a seat and a radio tower. So awesome Green Lantern. That's a good use of his power, actually. Uh, page nine. I- I'm wondering in your copy of the book, does Liberty Bell look like she suddenly lost all pigment in her face? Where is this? Page nine, second panel. Page nine. Yeah, it's yeah. There is an odd uh, coloring thing going on here. She's not quite. It's like an off-white color, but yeah, it does look very funny. Uh, also, page nine. I was kind of taken aback, not surprised, and thought it was actually kind of a cool thing that real American to whip up the crowd was basically saying, "Well, we all know that Amazing Man killed somebody." Um, yeah, he's was... <laughs> nobody bothers to to research this or anything. They're just like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's right, he killed him." And I'm like, "That was the moment that caught me in this issue because, thankfully, in the very next." Uh, the very next panel at the top of page 10 there, you've got uh, Firebrand essentially going, what the hell is he talking about? Because when I read that, I'm like, wait a minute, who the hell died? And I was like going for the issue you know, to look it up, and I'm like, I don't remember him killing anybody. So, yeah, he totally made that up just to whip up the crowd. I thought that was funny. Um, page 11, thank you, Roy Thomas, for finally having the one white guy in Detroit that isn't a complete racist. <laughs> Be the, the, the cop here. That's like, everybody gets a fair shake in my prison. And, you know, they make the point, well, you know, there's a lot of black people here. <laughs> I say, let them go. But, uh, and also on page 11, dude, that thing they got tr- Amazing Man trussed up in, in looks weird. That, that's a weird straight jacket, and that's a weird helmet. Yeah. See, I thought it was going to turn out to be some, like, power-nullifying helmet or something. I didn't understand why you know, where that came from or what it's supposed to be doing. So, we get uh, the next couple of pages where Real American has convinced some of the All-Star Squadron to his side, leading, I think, to a really good fight scene between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was rather pleased with how this played out. I liked the fact that Amazing Man was able to, you know, overcome anything. And holy crap, he's an android? What? Yeah. Because I was like, because I had remembered in, in my own Swiss cheese memory, which sometimes happens, that the cook, Barf, <laughs> from the previous issue, for some reason, I remembered him as the real American. Right, that's what I thought, too. And I'm like, okay, so he's using some equipment from the monitor to basically, like like he was saying, that sounds like a weird like voice amplifying system. And that would have been kind of cool, that he's able to sway the crowd because of the equipment he got from the monitor. And then to have Johnny chase him down. To have it be an android, it, I, I gotta be honest, it took me out of the story. Yeah. Like, completely. Like, in, in almost a disappointing way. Now, it was cool to see Johnny chase the guy down. It was cool to see him calling the monitor and the monitor going, deuces, and basically leaving him to his own, you know, leaving him to his own fate. But that that just, it, it didn't ruin the story for me. Don't Don't take it like that. It's just one of those things where, okay, there's a lot of sci-fi elements in here anyways and kind of magical elements because you have Hawkman and his Inth Metal, you have Green Lantern's Ring, 
Uh, you have Johnny Quick with his super speed, which comes from a mathematical formula. You have Amazing Man, who was created by science, as Donovan Grant would say, and can absorb the properties. For some reason, the android thing was a bridge too far for me. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you. No, I, I'm totally with you. I feel the same exact way. That's a bridge too far. Uh, but, as cliched as it was, it was kind of cool to see Johnny Quick drinking the black coffee on the second uh, on page 20. I just want the deleted panel of him drinking going, Ugh! oh, God, it's <laughs> like crap. Going back to the android thing for just a second, not only does it kind of take me out of the story, but let me ask you, does it almost seem a little bit of a uh, of a cop-out? Like, yes. like, like this should have been a person that now has to face up to what they've said. They've said all these horrible racist things, stirred up this whole situation, really made a bad situation worse. Absolutely. But then there's no there's no uh payoff for it or there's no uh justice to to be de- you know delivered in this situation because it turns out oh it was just a robot. That seems like a real cop out to me. I mean, maybe I'd have bought it a little bit better if it turned out to be a um like a Baylock situation. All right, so maybe the 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 real American is some sort of puppet android type of thing, but he's actually being controlled by, yeah, you know the the leader here, or you know something like that. But no, and to have him being a, a completely autonomous unit doing this on his own, and then he just blows up at the end of the story. It just it it just feels like a real, um, just a real cop out to me. What do you yeah, think? It, it was it was it was disappointing because. Like you said, you wanted, with a story steeped in controversial terms, in a in, a, in kind of a, a black eye, you know, in, in American history, you know, you know, very steeped in reality. To have it be an android just takes takes some of the winds out of the sails, right? And, you know, it, it, like you said, it. And I don't like, and I don't, second time I've done this in a podcast recently, but because I, I don't like rewriting what happened. But to me, it would have been much stronger to have it be have been the cook. Yeah, who had a device that allowed him to do it. I think that would have been cooler because then you, like you said, you hit the nail on the head. You had a real face to go with these horrible things he was saying. Right. And now all you have is a guy who apparently believed it, but everyone abandoned him, and he got his ass kicked by Johnny Quick at the end of the story. And that's not a real satisfying ending. I mean, to be fair, you know, on the last page, Amazing Man apparently pulled up a uh, a crate so he could, you know, knock, set his knee up on it and look like... <laughs> it reminds me of this early episode of Family Guy where Peter was running for uh for um he was running for like school board uh to get one of his favorite teachers reinstated and in the commercial he like walks up he's in a school he's in like a school room and he props his leg up on a desk and in every other situation he's in around the school, that desk is there so he can prop his leg up on it. That's what this reminds me of. Like he was, he was waiting for that moment to say, "Now nah, wait a second, I'm joining the team," uh, <laughs> which is cool. Uh, I don't think Rachel's going to stick with you, sir. I, I think, uh, I, th- you know, she didn't want you to get your head busted in 
fighting for where you wanted to live. Now you want to go off and fight Nazis. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But, to be fair, at the bottom of page 21, Liberty Bell looks hot. Yeah, she looks good right there. Really good, actually. I'm really liking the costume with the cape and the mask and everything. And, uh, you know, they all fly off and, you know, kind of, you know, chuckling it up. It's like, after all... If I can hide this steel kisser under a rubber mask, I can turn you into Winston Churchill. Uh, make it Louis Armstrong instead, okay? Da -da 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 -da. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. But that was th those were my uh, my many and varied thoughts on this issue. <laughs> Let's see here. I, I really just have a few on this. I uh, like you. I love the cover on this. I think it's great. Uh, skipping ahead here, I don't think I have anything for the first few pages. Page five, first panel. Um, who exactly is Green Lantern thumbing a ride from right here? <laughs> Either that or he's going, hey, one of the two. I can't decide which. And then he goes into a into like a diner and taps on the the jukebox and it starts. <laughs> now panel two, did you notice that there's little starbursts all around uh, Hawkman's head? This is one of those comics visual language things to let you know that he's been like entranced or or <laughs> hypnotized or something. But I just thought that was very subtle, you know, because there's no attention called to it or anything. It'd actually be really easy to miss that, but it's him coming out from under the the spell that was cast on him by uh by Real American's voice. No. Wow. No, I didn't notice that at all. That's a that's a good spot. It feels like there's a piece of dialogue missing between the transition from page six to page seven, because on page six, it ends with uh, Everett's girlfriend. She goes, ex-fiance, mean, you mean? She says, uh, if they're going to kill him, or excuse me, they're going to kill him if you people don't do something to stop them fast. And then you turn the page, and it's as if someone had said something which no one else does, she continues. She goes, of course they're going to kill him. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. All right, so on this page you say, if you people don't do something fast to stop them, then you turn the page, of course they're... So who the hell is she talking to? Who, who? It's like she's answering somebody, but nobody had said anything. So I think there's an error in the in the dialogue here or something. It just struck me as kind of weird. Not everybody's a racist, Rachel. <laughs> but right now, Will's f Will's safe behind bars. Yeah, because a black man in prison is so safe. Right. Not in this town, he's not. <laughs> well, plus, it bothers me greatly that, okay, so she's, you know, she she has to be the, I don't even know how to accurately describe her. She just irritates me in, in all these issues that she's in because, you know, these people are obviously the obviously there to help yeah and they don't seem hung up on skin color i'm talking about the all-stars here you know they're 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 trying their best to help and she's just being an asshole about this whole situation to a point that she actually uh she goes on so much that the very people that the All-Stars are actively doctoring and applying bandages to and everything all of a sudden they turn on them too 
And you've got the very next panel where these black guys are like hitting robot man in the head with a brick. And I'm like, what? Anderson stopped by to uh, draw our man. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you people? I mean, uh, you know, two minutes ago, you were perfectly all right being assisted. And now all of a sudden, no, you're, you're, you're going to turn well, on Rachel's the very... an Android too. I guess <laughs> that, that bothered me a lot though. That, I mean, they're, you know, they're just, they're being ugly in this whole situation. It's back to your white friends, all of you, and he's bonking Robot Man in the head with a brick. And I'm like, really? Because it looked to me like he was helping you, dude. Why Why would you do that? Uh, let's see. There's a strange bit of dialogue on page eight in the last panel. Uh, where is it here? They're listening to the radio. And this is what the radio uh, announcer's voice says. It says, one young, uh, one young Negro uh, interviewed, put it this way, the army is going to take me uh, to fight for democracy, but I, as Leaf, fight for democracy right here. And I'm like, what the hell is this spelling error or whatever? I, I assumed it was some sort of spelling error or, or a dialogue error, printing error or something. So I looked it up, and it turns out that as Leaf um, – is just uh, it was described on the dictionary site that I looked at as basically it's an archaic term. People don't really talk this way anymore, or don't they don't really use this expression much anymore. But as leaf essentially means uh, I just as soon. So you could translate it as I just huh. as soon fight for democracy right here, which makes sense. I understand it that way, but I don't. I just don't recall having ever heard that particular expression before. Um, I thought it interesting that Roy Thomas would use that particular one. Page 10, last panel again, you've got the uh, All-Stars are being power-ringed through the wall of the police headquarters by Green Lantern, and as they come through, the police sergeant, or police captain, whatever he is, he goes, holy cow, it's the Justice League, or Justice Society, rather. Holy cow, it's the Justice Society. And Liberty Bell is thinking to herself, hmm, after three whole months, you'd think somebody would get our name right for the first time. But I just, this really struck me because listening again to old episodes, I do this all the time. This seems a little bit nitpicky, and I'm not sure if it's through Bell or if it's Roy Thomas picking the nit here, but I mean... I don't know about you, Mike. I, I can't recall if I've ever caught you doing this, but I tend to use Justice Society and All-Star Squadron as synonymous terms. Yeah. I mean, does that seem kind of nitpicky to really try to differentiate between one or the other? I um, I think it is a little nitpicky. Yeah. Actually. Because it's like when we were pointing out before that I think you were the one that pointed it out, all the times where they'd come busting in someplace and somebody would say, hey, it's the Justice Society and Wonder Woman. And like, okay, after a certain amount of time, isn't she just like by default part of the team because she's always hanging out with them all the time? I mean, does she have to like sign a piece of paper you know, really to be you know, officially considered part of the team? You know what I mean? After a time, doesn't it just seem like she's a part of the team because she's just hanging out with them? I don't know. It's just one of those weird kind of... Roy Thomas seems to get hung up on, on little things like that sometimes with the continuity. But it's one of the charming little things that I like about this series as well. 
Uh, let's see. Jumping way ahead here to page uh, 19. Uh, despite the total Scooby-Doo ending to this whole thing, I do like Johnny Quick's resolution to this. I like the fact that it's Johnny that takes the guy down because he, he seemed to have the biggest issue with what was going on right from the beginning of the story anyway. So I like that. And I like him fulfilling his promise to, to come back to the diner and have uh, a cup of coffee black. I, I just, I don't know. I, I like that sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm all about the, the corny little cheese ball moments. So I thought that was pretty cool. Somewhere here, and I failed to make a note of what page it was, there was a comment, something about something about Willow Run. I totally failed to see. Oh, here it is. It was on the page, uh, it's page 18, third panel, um, where the uh, leader of the Phantom Empire calls up the monitor. The, the caption on that panel says, and in a dimension far, far away, yet nearer by far than Willow Run. And I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? I looked that up, and Willow Run was close to Detroit or in Detroit or something. It was, it was like a factory in that area. You had a lot of moments like that in this issue. Well, yeah, I mean, because Roy does that quite a bit through the course of this series, is he'll just throw little things in there that uh, sometimes will just kind of trip you up if you're not, like, really versed on this particular era in uh, in American history. And I can only wonder, you know, as a kid reading this, what I thought of things like that, because we certainly didn't have Wikipedia at our fingertips, you know, in the 80s reading this stuff. So was it one of those things where you just kind of breeze past it or did you try to look it up or why? Because I don't remember doing any of that. You know, generally in comics, if I couldn't kind of cipher out what it was, it just fell into the realm of, eh, I don't know what he's talking about. And you kind of forgot about it. So that's kind of the, one of the fun things about revisiting this in the modern era is you can actually quickly find out about things like that. What is he talking about? Like the as leaf thing. I would have just assumed without Wikipedia, you know, to, or I mean, to, without the internet to look that up, I, w- I, w- I really would have just assumed that that was a misprint. So I thought that was interesting that no, that's, that's legit. But that's pretty much all I got on this. Um, I dug it. I didn't like it as much as the first chapter, um, but at least it was better than the second chapter. The second chapter, I thought, really kind of bogged down. Yeah, we 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 spent a lot of time complaining about that last time, didn't we? Yeah. Um, and I like that this, uh, as I said, this is a uh, a pre-crisis monitor appearance in this particular issue as well. But beyond so, that, that's pretty so much we did it. A little managing in the middle. Absolutely, of the we did. Absolutely. For those that are curious, the whole monitor thing is entirely confined to uh, to page 18, uh, really just a couple of panels where the, uh, the leader of the Phantom Empire, he has a, uh, a uh, what does he call it, a newfangled television set, which is, uh, you know, essentially a, a two-way monitor sent to him by the monitor where he can uh, call him up and talk to him. And the monitor's actual appearance comes down to one panel on that page where we see his hand. And that's pretty much all we see. see Which, for the most part, is all we ever saw. That's pretty much it. Yeah, you're right. 
<laughs> the monitor was a hand. He was like he was like uh, Doctor Claw from the Inspector yeah, Gadget for a long time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good way to put it because you're absolutely right. And a lot of times that's all he was. That's all I got though. Alrighty, well we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna play some promos, and when we come back, we're gonna talk about Infinity Incorporated number nine, and a few more of those crisis management comics. Yes. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the super friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, Tootie Man and Our Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District Man, Arisian, Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. And now we're going to jump ahead in time, uh, roughly 40 years or so, and talk a little bit about the uh, the sons, the daughters, the protégés, and the uh, whatever the hell they are, God <laughs> the godchildren <laughs> of the Justice Society. Take Alrighty, we've... Like- We've got Infinity Incorporated number 9, which was released on September 20th, 1984. This is the penultimate chapter of the Generation Saga. How green was my victory? The quote for this time is, Men don't get smarter when they grow older, they just lose their hair. Claudette Colbert in the Palm Beach story. I hope she got smacked right after she said that. Wow. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just mean. I didn't like that. If it is true, I didn't like that. (laughs) Is that because you're losing your hair? No! Yes. (laughs) After a slow pause. Um, Brainwave Jr. and Star Spangled Kid find each other in a weird Mindscape type place, only to be faced with Brainwave Jr.'s dad, Brainwave. For those curious, we are dealing with hydrocephalic brainwave. <laughs> not good-looking brainwave from the early issues of the JSA revamp. 
Brainwave Senior welcomes them to Limbo, followed by father and son bickering until Sylvester tells them to stop the insanity. After a quick explanation, you know, there's going to be about five people that are going to remember who Susan Powder was and are going to get that joke, and I feel bad now for telling it. After a quick explanation on how the older Brainwave was able to draw them into Limbo, Brainwave Jr. starts another argument about about evil, and the old man is like, yeah, evil is just a concept, only your mother loved me, which leads to another argument about how it was worrying about the older Brainwave being in jail that finally drove Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks, to an early grave until Young Justice comes along and brings her back. All of this proves to be pointless because after all the fuss and bother, Brainwave Senior reveals there is no way out of limbo. Meanwhile, Jade and Obsidian take off after their father, while Green Lantern's old enemy, the Harlequin, stands ready to face off against GL2. Starman gets to Green Lantern first, or at least he thinks he does. Ted thought he found GL in space messing with the satellite. Turns out Ted Knight only attacked an illusion, and Green Lantern managed to suck all the energy out of Ted's rod. Wait, what? He manages to drain all of the essence out of Ted's rod. Wait, what? He manages to pull out all of the energy from Ted's rod and leaves the man to die. I don't know if that's any better, dude. <laughs> there is no good way to say this. <laughs> they wrote three different options. None of them are appealing. <laughs> He's saved by Jade and Obsidian, who quickly turn their attention to the man they believe is their father. That isn't their main concern at the moment, and after a little back and forth, GL attacks Jade with a drill bit construct. Obsidian jumps in front of her and nearly takes GL out, but the older, older former hero manages to fight him off. Jade and Green Lantern square off and their constructs turn from a simple game of arm wrestling to a sword versus lightsaber fight. Okay, I don't know how this works, but Green Lantern knocks the construct out of Jade's hand. And she, I don't know how you knock a construct out of somebody's hand. It should, like, disappear immediately, but whatever. Jade (laughs) immediately throws up a protective bubble, which turns out to be a bad idea, as Green Lantern does his best to use a vice construct to crack it open. Thankfully, Obsidian has recovered and uses his powers to make Green Lantern see the darkness within, and that sends the older hero packing. After a quick conversation about how evil GL's thoughts were and how evil that river he was uh, drowned in is, the younger heroes take off after the man that could be their dad. In the Batcave, Robin demands to be set free. A shadowy figure steps out and plays a tape made by the Huntress, explaining why Robin has to stay locked up. She tells him that the stream of ruthlessness must be destroyed, leading Robin yelling, No! <laughs> Before Alfred Pennyworth, old as dirt, but still rather spry, turns the tape off and explains that he will keep Robin locked up until the effects of the stream wear off because that's what Master Bruce would have wanted. How old must he be at this point? Say, dude. <laughs> He's like, you know, when God said, let there be light, Alfred stepped to the left. So, you know. In Bale City, Utah, Nuclon turns out not to be dead. Wildcat insists on taking on the Atom by himself, and Nuclon seemingly agrees, all the while thinking about how Al Pratt is probably on his way back to Colorado. We cut to Hawkman's place, where Norda proves what a useless waste of space he is by locking Hawkman up in, get this, 
his own trophy room. As you would imagine, Hawkman escapes because putting the master of ancient weapons in a, in a room full of ancient weapons couldn't possibly go wrong. And by that, I mean it goes very wrong for Norda very quickly. Like the other former heroes, uh, Hawkman is headed to Colorado and Norda gives chase. I'm sorry, that was stupid. <laughs> like, wow. Not so stupid is in Superman's Secret Citadel, Power Girl retrieves some kryptonite so she can bring her cousin down. In Fall Springs, Colorado, Silver Scarab and Fury bust into the mayor's office, talk about how addictive the stream's waters are, get directions to where the stream could be, and bust back out of the joint. Near the stream, the ultra-humanite gloats to his captives about how awesome he is, especially seeing as how he took Midnight's supposed cure for the stream's effects. Midnight counters that the effects will wear off, but this doesn't phase Humanite in the slightest. In fact, he was counting on it. And at that moment, Superman, Hawkman, Green Lantern, and the Atom burst into the room as the Humanite introduces his latest quote-unquote guests to be concluded. And I gotta ask, when you read that last page, did you hear Wallace Shawn as the ultra-Humanite? From, uh, from, from the Princess Bride? Oh, uh, I've never seen that movie. Uh, he is the voice of the dinosaur. Rex! Uh, on, yeah. on, uh, in Toy Story, and he was the boss in, um, in The Incredibles mm-hmm. that gets strangled. Right. He plays, he plays a character named Vecini who thinks he's very smart. <laughs> so, that's why I thought of Wallace Shaw. It's funny because the voice that I probably should hear, and I, don't, I have no idea what the actor's name is, the voice I probably should hear is the voice of the ultra-humanite from that uh, JLU episode that I love so much. Oh, um, this episode. The dude that was on soap operas for years, and he was in an episode of The Flash. The one where all the crooks are coming to town. Mm-hmm. And uh, they mentioned Carter Hall in that episode. So I just can't remember his name, but I know exactly who you're talking about. I really liked those episodes of Justice League Unlimited that he was in. They did a good job with Alter Humanite. Um, looking at the notes in the All-Star Companion Volume 4, not a whole lot, actually. This issue also includes a pinup and vital uh, stats data sheet of the Silver Scarab by Mike Macklin and Roy Thomas. Uh, Nuclon gains the power to turn immaterial, the result of his overexposure to thorium radium in the previous issue, and it occurs to me that I never gave the credits to this issue. Whoops! Uh, it was written and edited by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway Penciler, Mike Macklin, Jerry Ordway, and T. Dazeniga. Inkers. Tony, yeah. Uh, Cody and Lil Bauhaus. Well, L. Bauhaus. Uh, or Bauhaus. I don't know how you pronounce that. Or Letters, Dan Thomas Coplotter, Adrian Roy, and Anthony Tallinn Colorists. So what do you got on this uh, this issue? Well, I should go front to back, but I'm just noticing here, because I was flipping through the issue as you were going through it, that uh, pinup of the Silver Scarab actually reminds me a lot of the uh, some of the secret origins in the game um, Freedom Force. I don't know if you ever played that game or not, but it had a real uh, 60s Marvel vibe to it. There's a real 60s Marvel vibe to this particular picture, I think. It's, it's very Kirby-esque. I kind of like that. 
Silver Scarab, not really one of my favorite of the uh, of the Infinitors, oh, but I kind of yeah. like this picture though. It's kind of cool looking. Um, I really don't have a lot on this issue to be honest with you. I really enjoyed it. Um, I do have a couple of quick notes here. Page six, the uh, the top four panels where the Harlequin comes out and just stands in the alley and watches uh, Jade and Obsidian fly away. I can't help but hear the voice of Marty McFly's sister in my head going, you wore that to the lake? <laughs> I just, really? I mean, granted that you have to suspend a lot of disbelief to read superhero comics, but seriously, sister, your yeah. outfit's ridiculous. You look like the top of a birthday cake. Yeah, yeah, she does. Yeah. Um, let's see, page, jumping way ahead here, page 13, oh yes, page 13 is just awesome. I particularly like the third panel of uh, Robin, he's he's gripping one of the bars of his cage, and he's just got this maniacal look on his face, I really like this. Um, I love the Earth 2 Robin anyway, but that's a really cool panel, I just, or yeah, a really cool that, page. That's dark. Yeah, <laughs> I just, I like the whole page, really, I think the whole page looks really good. Uh, flipping the page, Robin's still locked up. Fourth panel, you just got a great uh, panel here that I like to call What's Happening to Lieutenant Uhura, because it just reminds me of that episode where Kirk's <laughs> reaching through the bars of his cage. Like I just love that. Uh, page 18, jumping way ahead here. Oh, okay. You know, Windows costs money. What the hell was this all about? You couldn't come through a door. Now, I understand when Superman does this sort of shit, because he's Superman. He's in a hurry. He's got other shit to do. But Fury and Silver Scarab, they literally smash through the sheriff's window for no good reason. She just says, oh, sorry about that, but we've got to find my mother, Wonder Woman. That's it. She just wants to find her mom. You can use a door for that. It just, I, It just kind of bugged me. It was like... It was almost like somebody looked at this and said, you know, we haven't really had any action for a few pages or a few panels, so we just we need to have them doing something dynamic. Have them smash through the window. Uh, you know, if I was the sheriff, I'd be kind of pissed about that. Uh, and, oh, yes. Last page. It's just awesome. I just love this shot. You know, Ultra's do, you know being very, uh, very super villain. He's standing there and he's got his arms outstretched. And he's just, he's just gloating at that moment as the uh, the JSAers come into the room. And uh, I, I love the way it's colored. It just, it's really dynamic. You've got all the big guns coming in at the very end of the story. The composition is dynamic. Superman, Hawkman, and Green Lantern all look really weird. They don't look like they were drawn by Jerry Ordway. I think a lot of that has to do with the inking, because I definitely, in uh, in Superman anyway, I definitely see some serious uh, Tony DiZaniga going on yeah. there. So I will grant you that Superman's body, um, I don't know if it's so much body language or just his body, but he, he looks a little strange. He's a little off model, but I still really like it. Yeah, like I said, composition-wise, it's great. It's just that that was that was like oddly enough, even though I, I kind of feel like the story is going on a little too long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were kind of talking about that before we even started recording tonight. Uh, the artwork in this issue, just top to bottom, was amazing. Mm-hmm. 
uh, starting from the first page where I expect uh, Brainwave Jr. and Star Spangled Kid to break into song. Uh, something from Rent, I would <laughs> um, Yeah, that's kind of weird. I like... You know, you could you could you could accuse the the opening sequence with Brainwave Senior as being overly expository and just being basically a major info dump, but I really kind of liked Brainwave and his father just arguing every five seconds like they can't get over it. That was actually kind of cool and revealing that his mother's dead. And you know, I I love the, the on page four. What an ego. God only knows what Hank's mother, my adopted sister Mary, ever saw in him. Uh, squash those thoughts, Sylvester. If I could hear him in here in limbo, so can he. But you know what? Brainwave doesn't care. And I actually <laughs> like this characterization of Brainwave. Uh, he says on page five, correct, still, remember your Milton, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, and Brainwave is the master of limbo. <laughs> Speaking of awesome artwork, Starman on page six looks like an older man. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, The whole sequence with Green Lantern is great. Uh, Artwork-wise, story-wise, everything's just clicking on all cylinders here. Uh, You mentioned you liked the maniacal look on Robin's face later in the issue. On page eight, I love that evil, like, sinister grin on Green Lantern's face. Yeah. And he keeps that up, especially like on page 11. I love how the mask doesn't look like a simple domino mask. It looks like something that fills his entire face. Uh, or that, that section of his face. It's just awesome. And yeah, Jade is straight up using a lightsaber. Yeah, I thought that was cool. There's even a reference to uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Now, page 13. When you saw the shadowy figure at the top of the page, and you saw the big Joker thing up there. Did you think that was the Joker at first? No, I had a feeling that it was Alfred, and about the time that I was thinking, you know, that about the time I had that thought, I'm thinking, no, Alfred's got to be dead by now. This is going to be turn out to be, like, son of Alfred or something. And then when it turned out to really be Alfred, I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure he'd be dead by now, you would think, but I don't know. It, it it all depends on the timeline. I mean, obviously, he is drawn to be like you know senior Alfred here, but still, it, it depends on the timeline that you're looking at. Because as you and I had discussed before in a previous episode, clearly they're playing fast and loose with the ages of some of the characters. Robin being one of them. Yeah, because they. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, definitely. <laughs> we talked about that before, I'm sure. Uh, page 15, before I really read the dialogue, I saw Nuclon popping up going, Hey, hey, over here. I'm right here. Hey, everybody. I like to redo the art where it's just a repetition of them not looking at him and ignoring him. I think that's really <laughs> funny. Uh, Albert looks a little odd on the bottom of that page, and I think that's more of the inking not really matching up with the penciling. Uh, page 16, you, you fucking idiot. Are you, okay, Norda, let me ask you a question. I know you live in another, like, civilization, basically, and I understand that. I understand that you've got issues because Hawkman liked flying with you as a kid, and his own kid hates you. What in the fuck were you thinking? Locking him up 
What does he say? I mean, even it's like, I trust you'll be comfortable here in your trophy room, Mr. Hall, while I fix myself what you would call a snack. <sighs> okay, one, you're off the team. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, plus, he has this thing here where he's like, peanut butter, jelly, and bread. Why, they're nearly as good together as I had. And I'm like, come on, really? Really? Don't, don't, don't do this to me. I mean, seriously, if both of those spears in that one panel had been like a foot lower and a foot to the left, I think all of our problems with Norda would have been solved. <laughs> what the saddest thing of all is that this character's still around today and he never got any better. He just turned <laughs> into a bigger bird. I'm like, really? Come on. Ah. Oh. Uh, loved seeing the secret citadel and was kind yes. of disturbed about how beat up Power Girl is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but you know what? This was one of my favorite parts of the issue because she's just like you know I don't really want to do this, but holy crap, <laughs> I've got to be ready for Mike because he beat the piss out of her. Mm-hmm. So um, we get a very human moment from the mayor. Uh, where after Silver Scarab, Silver Scarab at the top of page 19 looks really good, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's a really good, you know, Ordway just knocked it out of the park with the close-up panels in this issue. Uh, he managed to fill them with such, you know, fill the faces with such expression. But we get this really human moment where, uh, the guy goes, what's wrong, Mr. Mayor? All those people in trouble, and all I can think about is how this is going to affect the next election. What's wrong with me? I was just like, thank you. At last, a human moment from you. <laughs> uh, page 20. It looks like Chris Honeywell is the ultra-human I Yeah! <laughs> I can totally see Chris photoshopping himself into that. Totally. I could totally uh, see him putting his, his brain into a giant white <laughs> ape, too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we set up for the, the climax of the story beautifully here. You know, I had a little issue with the art. Uh, we talked about that. But overall, this is how you kind of want to end it. Uh, Sylvester and Brainwave are in limbo. How the heck are they going to get out of there? All the heroes are making their way to Colorado. I mean, this is just setting everything up to the, the climax of the story, and you just know it's going to be this knockdown, drag-out fight. And I'm really looking forward to reading the next issue. See, I had, uh, I, I knew that Dizaniga had done some inking for, um, All Star, you know, All Star Squadron. I had kind of forgotten that he had done some inking for Infinity Inc. as well. I hope he sticks around. However, I hope that his and Ordway's styles mesh a little better in future issues because I don't want that to become a thing between you and I, because I don't know how you feel about Dizaniga, but I love Tony Dizaniga's art. So while I will agree with you that the art looks a little weird in this, I just think it's mostly because these guys have very disparate styles that, as I say, I hope mesh a little better in, in future issues so that it's not as jarring. But uh, if, if it had been this way throughout the entire issue, I probably wouldn't have even noticed it. Oh, okay. But it's that last page where things look a little different. Right. Because uh, there's only certain panels where I can really distinctly tell that it's uh, Disney. Anyway, that last panel, or that last page, rather, just happens to be one of them. The only other one 
that immediately jumps out to me is there on page 17, that close-up shot of, uh, of Power Girl with the scratches and the bruises and everything. That's Disney uh, inking. I-, I can definitely tell you on that one. But uh, I like it. I think it's good stuff. I really like it. So I think he also inked the majority of the Robin sequence, too, if I'm not mistaken. But fun issue. Kind of glad that it's that the story's wrapping up next time because I really want to see this team evolve beyond just fighting their parents. Right. Yeah, I'm ready for where it goes next because if memory serves, this whole thing wraps up with 10, and then I think like 11 and 12 are Don Newton, I think. And then in 13 or 14, we get the new artist beyond that, and that's uh, um, Todd McFarlane. Absolutely. And while I'm not the Todd McFarlane fan I was at one time, I'm still really anxious to revisit that stuff because I'm curious how it's going to hold up after all this time. But I was a huge fan of that stuff when it... uh you know, when I originally discovered it, because I discovered most of that stuff as back issues, having discovered um, McFarland's art when he was working on the Hulk and really being enamored of that. So, I don't know, but it's been a long time. We'll see how all that stuff holds up. Yeah, kind of interested to see how that's going to play out, because my feelings on Todd McFarlane are complicated. <laughs> Now, is that on Todd McFarlane the person or Todd McFarlane the artist? The artist, in all honesty. Uh, Some of it's very good. Some of it is a little rough. (laughs) Not so much. All right. Well, are we ready for the next segment? Absolutely. All right. Wrapping this issue up, we have Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse Crisis Management Edition. Again, all synopses are from the official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. So first up, this issue, we, or excuse me, this episode, rather, we have DC Comics Presents. Uh, this is number 76. This is Superman and Wonder Woman. And it occurs to me that we've been doing these uh, pretty much just breezing right through them, you know, trying to save time, try to cover as many of them as possible. However, we've never given any credits or anything on any of these. Um, I don't know if it's it's probably too late at this point to to really go back and, and change that format now. But uh, I was going to solicit the listeners for their feedback uh, about that. But by the time we would get feedback on it, we'll be past all of these pre-crisis monitor appearances. So sorry about that, guys. Uh, let's see here. So the synopsis for this issue from the uh, crossover index is the monitor observes the clash between the Superman Wonder Woman team and Christine Cade. The monitor's role in this issue, uh, it happens entirely on page nine. The monitor's satellite appears to be floating in an asteroid field, which I thought was very uh, interesting because most everywhere else it's shown to be in orbit. Uh, And the monitor seems to be uh, watching to observe the teamwork between the two heroes, and he tells, <clears throat> pardon me, tells Lila that this battle will uh, be the one that they'll want to keep a permanent record of in their files. Uh, I don't really just had a couple of notes for this one. I really like the story. Or, excuse me, I really cool. like the art, rather. I thought the story was a little mad, but I really like the art in this issue. Absolutely. Uh, Superman, I thought, looked great. 
and Third Wonder Woman. Yeah, you know, I I was going to say that I've seldom found the pre-crisis Wonder Woman to be particularly attractive. Only a few artists I ever thought really did much with her pre-crisis. But in this particular one, I thought she was really attractive. And this is what made me think about the credits. I just wanted to mention um, who it was on this. It was uh, Eduardo Barreto was the artist. Mm-hmm. I have to be honest. I've seen his stuff elsewhere before and never really thought that much of it. But uh, I'm going to have to uh, seek I out more of it. Work. Yeah, I, I really liked his Superman in this. His Superman in this reminded me a lot of uh, of superpowers from around this time, you know, the, yeah. the, the animated stuff. Barreto had a very Garcia, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, uh, style to him. Mm-hmm. He was on the Titans for a little while. Right. Uh, right after the crisis, and I kind of dug him there. He did also, I believe he was the one that drew the Master of the Future Elseworld, which was the sequel to... Uh, Gotham by Gaslight? Gotham by Gaslight, and I loved his take on that costume. Uh, which is kind of a cool Batman costume to begin with. He's passed away, unfortunately. Oh, has he? Oh, that's a shame. Uh, but one of the one of the things he did before passing away, he did a, a series with Bo Smith called Cobb, which was an action book that kind of had a feel of like an '80s action film, and I really liked it. And it was really good artwork. So seeing him draw Superman and Wonder Woman, I'm. Uh, at the risk of sounding like a sexist pig, Wonder Woman's hot. Yeah, she is. Higher freaking issue. Yeah, she is. Page four. You know, you had mentioned how he's uh, a lot like Garcia Lopez, and you look at page four. That panel, that first panel up there, where she's changing to Wonder mm-hmm. Woman from Diana Prince. That is clearly uh, Lopez inspired, I think, right there. That's really nice stuff. But yeah, I was uh, I was most impressed with this. Uh, I really liked his Superman, uh, but I was really impressed by his Wonder Woman because I don't know Wonder Woman was just one of those ones that uh, I, I seldom really saw her as you know outside Linda Carter notwithstanding, she was never really somebody in the comics that you went went ooh she's hot until exactly George until George George Perez yeah made her freaking hot yeah so that's very true. That's very true. But I, I, I liked it as far as the artwork went. The story was a little, eh, it was okay, I thought. Um, Lila is especially sexy in this issue, I thought. <laughs> and Hey, Lila, is it cold on this satellite? Is it you? <laughs> and the monitor himself, um, he's shown head-on in one panel at the bottom of, uh, of page nine. And I just point that out because it didn't happen very often. Now, granted, he's shown head-on, but you see nothing. His his face is entirely shaded out. Really, all we get is of the monitor in this, again, we get his hands. That's pretty much all we get. Uh, but I like that one head-on shot of him. But, uh, yeah, Lila looking pretty good in this one. All right, so moving right along, the next one here, we've got Superman, number 402. <laughs> The uh, synopsis on this one is the Monitor observes a visiting team of 40th century doctors um, where Superman can be found. Yeah, okay. I did read that right. The Monitor observes a visiting team of 40th century doctors where Superman can be found. I think what this should read as, if you look in the... Crisis on uh, Infinite Earths crossover index, where I'm getting these from. If you look on the page, 
where it has these synopses of the pre-crisis monitor appearances, the entry above Superman number 402 is, of course, it's uh, DC Comics Presents 76 that I just talked about. And it says, the monitor observes the clash, blah, blah, blah. And then the next one down, this one for 402, Superman 402 says, the monitor observes blah, blah, blah. And I think... I think it's just a printing error, you know, a, a mistake. I think how this should read is using instead of the word observes, it should say like tells or informs. Mm-hmm. So it should say the monitor informs a visiting team of 40th century doctors where Superman could be found because that's what actually happens in the story. They go to the monitor to find out, hey, where's Superman right now? So anyway, uh, the Monitor's role in this issue, um, it, this one's interesting because the Monitor is actually rather spread out over the course of the issue, which uh, up till now I don't think we've really seen that. So on page 8, first two panels, uh, one of the time travelers, rather than continue to search down below for their quarry, uh, goes into orbit to find the one man in this era who can tell them what they need to know for a price. And he, so he's just alluded to, essentially. Uh, page nine, bottom two panels, one time traveler asks the other how they'll pay the monitor if indeed he possesses the info that they need. The other responds that their time jumper is composed largely of titanium, a common material in their era, but rare and valuable uh, here in the 20th century, and they'll use some of it to pay. Uh, jumping ahead, page 11, panels three and four. The time travelers, having com- concluded their, their business, they complain about the cost of the information, calling it highway robbery. And I'm thinking, is this really likely to be an expression that will still be in usage in the 40th century? Highway robbery? I'm like, eh, I don't know if I, if I could buy that. But <laughs> you know, when, when I hear these guys talk, I hear like the aliens from Galaxy Quest. Right. <laughs> We will call this highway robbery. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, page 16, panels 4 and 5. Superman asked the time travelers how they found it, but they declined to tell him, saying that it must remain their secret. So, I, I, again, I thought that was interesting. Kind of alluding to him. Also... <laughs> he goes, why are you wearing mushroom hats? <laughs> Now, I found this very interesting and also a little bit disturbing, and I'll tell you why. But here's what I found interesting. So there's a backup story in this issue, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the monitor is actually mentioned in the backup story. He's uh, – uh, and I've got here panel five. I think I meant to say page five. Let me see if I can tell you exactly which page it is here. But it's in the backup feature. Okay, it's the fifth panel of page four is what it is. I just failed to write down the page number. Fifth panel of page four. Um, so in this story, which, by the way, was illustrated, this is uh, written by E. Nelson Bridwell. I just wanted to point that out. And uh, illustrated by Wayne Boring and Pablo Marcus. Love the art in this story. Just gave me such a total Silver Age vibe. I really, really like this. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a short little story. So Jor-El of Krypton, Superman's dad, right? Uh, his mind is swapped across space and time with Superman. So essentially, uh, you know, Clark Kent wakes up one morning, or Clark Kent's body wakes up one morning, but with the mind of Jor-El in it, and Jor-El has, like, no idea, how did I get here, where am I, who am I? He doesn't know what's going on. But he ends up 
just through the course of events, foiling a bank robbery, and he rips apart this tank-like machine and, and stops these would-be bank robbers. One of the robbers remarks, catch me buying anything from the monitor again. That's all it is, is just that yes. little mention. But I thought it was interesting because there is no mention of this in the crossover index. No mention that the monitor is a part of the second story in the book. I thought it was really cool. Here's the part that disturbed me. Does this happen anywhere else that I don't know of? That's going to make oh, me no. nuts, you know? Are there other little mentions of the monitor elsewhere, somewhere in these other books from this period that aren't in the index because they're not deemed, like, important? It's not an actual appearance. It's just a mention. Call me a crazy completist fanboy, but I want those stories. I want them in my collection. If there are, I want to own everything with the monitor and everything crisis-related. So that's going to kind of drive me a little nuts, I think. You know, it's kind of, this is going to sound terrible, because the first story isn't bad. Right. The second story is actually rather enjoyable. Mm -hmm. These stories are the reasons Man of Steel happened. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, just, and I say that as somebody who, who, who enjoys the Bronze Age of Superman, this is that time period where some of these stories tripped back into the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. And there's an audience for that, and I'm not going to talk against that audience because, you know, Superman, pretty malleable character, has evolved over the years. But when I look at this, I know that if I had picked this book up when I was eight years old, almost nine, as the when it as I was when it came out, this would not have made me want to read further. I would have been like, oh, that's kind of a fun Superman book. Ooh, something else. Exactly. So that's just that's just how it is. I was the case example of the young kid that wasn't really grabbed by this type of story until John Byrne came along. I'm totally and completely with you. Last one for this time around. We have Saga of the Swamp Thing number thirty-one. Ooh. So yes. <laughs> Synopsis on this one, lured by the incredible flux of mystic power, the Monitor and Lila watch the climactic battle between Swamp Thing and Arcane, though tempted to look away. And this is part two of two back-to-back pre-crisis Monitor appearances in Saga of the Swamp Thing. Uh, the Monitor's role is entirely on page nine, and it is pretty much exactly as I just read. Uh, the, this exact thing happens. Lila tells him about, hey, look what's happening in Louisiana, and the, and the Monitor says, you know, I must watch, although I'm tempted to look away. That's essentially it. Only the Monitor's hand is shown uh, in this sequence. This issue... And particularly this storyline, I, I just have to, I, I know I said it last time, but I just have to reiterate, one of the greats, one of the all-time mm. DC comic greats. And, and just an excellent, excellent story. Um, I don't want to give anything away of it to those that may have never read it. I'm just going to say, if you've never read this or if you haven't read it in a long time, check it out. Man, it's, a, it's, it's still a hell of a good story. I'm so delighted to find that after all these years of, I mean, I don't think I've read this again since 84, so, you know, 30 years. Still holds up. Still kick-ass stuff. 
Um, my, my last note on this is I wanted to correct a mistake. Something I said last time around that I'm hoping I don't get a flood of emails, people calling me out about it. I was completely confusing two different storylines and two different issues last time, Mike, when I was telling you about where this is headed. Mm-hmm. Swamp Thing does descend into hell. He does go in this story from this issue right here is continued in the second Swamp Thing annual. He does descend into hell to try to to fix what happened in this storyline, right? It does involve some of the the mystical characters. I know Dead Man's in it. I think he runs into the Phantom Stranger and Etrigan. I think. Don't hold me to that. But it is, is that the is that the one where Doctor Fate? takes on Abnegazer, Wraith, and Gas and completely obliterates them? I don't think so, but again, don't hold me to that. But the story I was telling you about where Swamp Thing assembles basically an army of mystical heroes to, to accompany him into hell, that's what I thought that annual was. Completely different story. That happens in Saga of the Swamp Thing number 50. So there's actually two different stories, very similar to each other, where you know where Swamp Thing is together with other heroes, you know, mystical heroes, but that that's a completely different story because number fifty is the one where he goes with with these other heroes and one of them doesn't return. It was actually the death of not really a major um, DC Comics character, but I mean, you would know the name if I said it. So. It'll be interesting, um, you know, when we get to that because that may or may not be crisis related. I can't remember, but when we get there, we'll at least cover it in in some sort of mention or something because it is a character with ties to uh, the Justice Society. Yeah, I loved this issue. I loved the previous one. It was really cool. Isn't it good stuff? This got me so excited about this stuff again that uh, I actually loaded up my uh, iPad with the uh, the entire uh, Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing just to just to reread it again because it's been so many years. And as I say, you know, it, it it happens a lot where I'll go back and I'll visit old stories that I haven't read in a long, long time and be like, ah, oh, you know, that just that just wasn't as good. But in this case, no, I, I, I'm so happy to find that, oh, it's really held up well. So I, I, I need to go back and reread the whole run now. I, I've been long overdue. I read the first trade paperback, and outside of one thing, I really liked what I read. Now, have you ever read the story? It comes along quite a bit after this, because um, it's in the 50s issues. Um, there's a story where I can't remember why, but Abby winds up in, she's either in jail or she's in Arkham in Gotham city and swamp thing comes there for her release and eventually gets to a point where he's causing ecological damage in Gotham city to try to basically force the city to let Abby go. And of course that brings him up against Batman. Did you ever read that? No. Oh man, it's some good shit. You I think you would love it. I think you would really get a kick out of it. Plus, uh I, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but Lex Luthor gets involved in I read that issue. We covered that on From Crisis to Crisis. Oh, did you? Okay. Now, 
Wh- which one did? Oh, so you probably got the one where he came to try to kill Luther, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Absolutely. But did you read the first? Did you read the issue that tells why he was trying to kill Luthor? No. Because here's the interesting thing about that. The the issue, the first time Luthor enters the saga, the Swamp Thing story, it, it's right on the heels of Swamp Thing and Batman fighting, right? Uh-huh. And Luthor comes in and, and he does something to Swamp Thing that essentially spurs the whole storyline where Swamp Thing winds out in, in space. Kind of like an exile story for Swamp Thing, essentially. But the, the Lex Luthor that does this to Swamp Thing is very clearly the pre-crisis Lex Luthor. Yeah, which is why we didn't cover it. And then when that storyline happens, the, the one that you guys covered, it's Swamp Thing coming to get revenge on Lex Luthor, except it's now the post-crisis Lex Luthor. And and Luthor is treated horribly out of character. In See, I, I was trying to remember. I, I don't remember in, as many details about one? the second one. Yeah, I don't remember as many details. But He's, he is not, you know, one of the things that we complained about for, like, most of the segment that we were talking about was that all of the things that I think Rick Veach was writing the book at that point. Oh, I think you're um, right, yeah. All, all the things Rick Veach had Lex Luthor doing were not things that the John Byrne or even the Marv Wolfman Lex Luthor would do. He was he had no finesse. He was he was kind of sloppy and he was forcing himself on a woman. And we were like, "No, the Lex Lex would just seduce her." Because he's just an evil prick. <laughs> you know? That's the great thing. It's like that, that beautiful story, Metropolis 9. Oh, I love that story, yeah. I mean, just, you know, that's Lex Luthor. The guy that comes in, he's suave, and he's charming, and he cuts you down to size, and, you know, he can, you realize by the end of it he could buy and sell you five times over. That's some guy that's forcing himself on one of his secretaries. That's just stupid. So yeah, we were not thrilled with that uh, with that issue. <laughs> but the the setup of it, though, I think that you would really really enjoy. I probably it. would. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not saying I wouldn't. I was just saying, uh, you know, you were talking about that. It made me realize remember the second one, and then I remember that I hated it. So because <laughs> there's there's a great line. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I'll probably end up badly misquoting it, but there's something uh, essentially somebody hires. Uh, Luthor to take Swamp Thing out, essentially. And there's a part where Luthor's like, basically, yeah, hey, I'm the guy. I'm the guy for the job. And he's being warned, he's being told, you know, this job is not going to be as easy as you think. This this guy is, you know, he he's in, I don't know if they use the word invulnerable. I want to say they use a different word, like indestructible or something like that. And you don't know who it is that's being talked to, I think, in the story until the, the moment where it shows that it's Luthor and he says, don't tell me about Indestructible. I know all about Indestructible. I can take this guy out. And when you realize, oh, my God, it's Lex Luthor being hired to do this job, it just it just adds a level of awesome to the whole thing. That Oh, yeah, I, definitely. I, I can totally see that because it's just like, well, he's Indestructible. You better watch out for that. It's like, bitch, please. Yeah, that I fight the Kryptonian. <laughs> yeah, that's to say, yeah, that's essentially what he says too. That issue you're talking about, uh, 
the the with the post crisis, Luther, you are right. That is a Veach and Alcala issue, which is why. Uh, yeah, I I don't have uh, fond memories of the Veach run. As a matter of fact, um, beginning a couple of issues before that one with Luthor, um, my run starts to get spotty on Swamp Thing, and and I canceled it just a few issues later because uh, when more left. Um, at 64, I tried to stick with it because I love the character, or at least I thought it was the character that I love, but Veach's take on, on the, on the character coupled with, uh, with Alcala's art, which by that time to, to my sensibilities had badly deteriorated from the Alfredo Alcala that I always liked. Uh, it was just not a good combination. I, I didn't enjoy it. I ended up dropping the book after that, but, uh. Again, I will say, despite whatever your personal feelings may be about Alan Moore as a, as a person or as a, uh, a cult of personality or whatever, if you've never read the classic uh, Alan Moore Swamp Thing run, you know, you're, you're only hurting yourself because it's, damn, it's some good comics. Some really good stuff. Absolutely. We had a good patch, a batch this time out. We did. We did. We've got a... You know, it occurred to me, we haven't really been teasing future stuff much at all. Should we do that at all? Or do you think uh, we're just... We're good doing it the I way like, we're doing I like it? keeping them guessing until we come back. Until they come back. All right. You want to figure it out? Come back and listen to the next episode. Well, that works for me. I'll tell you all about the hand that is the monitor. <laughs> You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday. Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally, Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there is no minimum donation be a show sponsor today you can also support this show and the two true freaks network as a whole when you shop on amazon Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. 
Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 